Today's reading is Acts 10, 34 through 43. It can be found on page 1014 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts those from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened through the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went on around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God anointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me, please? God of grace, uh, that what we just heard was spoken uh, about 2,000 years ago to a household full of people at Cornelius' house, and he had invited all his friends and family to hear it. And much like what happens on Easter, as we um, kind of come out in force with friends and family, and um, and but and yet that room was probably filled with people in all different places on the spectrum of belief and doubt and joy and sorrow as we are this morning. And help us to know that we share a universal truth as we stand before the words of hope of the resurrection that we are all uh, more of a mess than we care to admit. And yet we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. Speak to us through that love that powerfully comes into our world, first through the resurrection of Jesus after he had died on the cross. Come and meet us this morning, as you have said in your scriptures, you over and over you move towards us and you meet us with your grace, not even waiting for us to have it all figured out, not even waiting for us sometimes to ask for you to bring grace into our lives. You just meet us. You come and you get us. Do so this morning, we pray, through these words. Amen. There we go. I think you could hear me even though my microphone was in my pocket. <laughs> Usually, uh, we meet at 4 o'clock and the sun is coming through those windows, in, sometimes in my eyes, and now it's coming through that window, um, which is kind of fun. About five months ago, right at the end of summer, no, uh, five months, maybe six, seven months ago, towards the end of summer, it was a Sunday afternoon, and I was down by the river with my three children, and I'm not kidding to you, I looked out, and there comes down the river a whale. I'm not making this up. I'm a little hesitant to even say it, because you'll think I'm crazy, but we were standing there, and sure enough, there was this sound, and then a big ripple in the water, and we didn't know what it was, but then it kept happening about six or seven times, the, the glistening 
uh, wet skin of some kind of big mammal or animal, and and then this blowhole making this unmistakable sound. And we're just standing there at the edge of the American River. We're by, we had gone down by the skate park, 28th Street, to see what that was all about. And we saw the rivers right there. We walked down. It was a beautiful day. There was a sandy area. It was Sunday afternoon. It was, it was gorgeous and warm. And so we were dipping our toes in. And we had just got there. And, and this happens right in front of us. Um, I felt a little bit like um, in the reading um, that we uh, started in the beginning of the service with, with the, the guards or someone in the story is mentioned as being terrified and, and kind of dumbfounded and unable to move. Um, that's, that's how I felt. This isn't supposed to happen. This, this is the American River and this whale is going the wrong way uh, as the river gets smaller and smaller. You know that there's more evidence, more hard evid- evidence that you can look into um, that supports Jesus actually physically rising from the dead after dying on a Friday, rising on a Sunday, than there is to support the story I just told you, even though it's true. I, I did see a whale, and it led me into this five-month period of investigation and getting every book I could from the library and looking online to see if anybody else had seen this and emailing a marine biologist at UC Davis. I mean, I, I really, this freaked me out, and I started trying to figure it out. I started trying to wrap my mind around it. And that's exactly what we find ourselves doing when we come, become confronted with the resurrection, which is so central to the Christian faith. And someone might say, well, does it have to really be that central? Do, you know, do we need to um, put so much emphasis on the, you know, some of those particularities of the Christian faith? I mean, what, about, what if someone's living a really good life focusing on doing good deeds. They, they give their money away in large proportions to the poor and the needy. They know who Jesus is. They appreciate his teachings. They, know he, they believe he lived. He was a spiritual guru. Is it really necessary that, that Christians kind of put forward some of these particulars about Jesus, his death and his resurrection? Is it really needed if you have somebody like that? If you ask that question, or if you said that, you basically just described Cornelius. Cornelius is this Roman centurion, and he's the beginning of this message of those particulars breaking out past the Jewish sort of enclave concept and moving out into reaching all people, not just one ethnic group. Cornelius, who's described three times throughout this chapter, in verse 2, in verse 4, in verse, um, I think it's... 31, three times he's described as someone who gave his money to the poor. And then Peter starts in on this, this, this message that he's going to give to Cornelius and all the friends and family that Cornelius has packed the house with. It was probably a gathering a bit like this. And he begins to talk about things that they already know. And it's about Jesus. He says, you know this and you know that in verses 36 and 37 and 38. But then he gets to verse 39 and he makes a pivot where he talks about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's the thing they don't yet know that they need to know before they're fully incorporated and embraced by this movement of followers of Jesus, the church. It doesn't happen until they know 
the resurrection. They know the particulars of it. Cornelius isn't yet fully spiritually there until he grasps the resurrection. And I think neither are we. So let's look into this. As we often do on Easter, as we revisit some of the evidence and the implications. So we're going to look at why. Why is it that Cornelius and all his friends and family and all of us need the resurrection? Three simple things that come out of this passage. The first is that it happened. Pretty basic reason. You need it because it happened. Um, Second, because it refuels your openness to others. And third, because uh, it gives you the judge that your heart longs for. We'll get to that, but let's start with it happened. In verse 41, Peter says um, that, that he, and there's six people with him that have traveled to this Gentile's house. He starts his sermon by saying, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with Gentiles or visit them. I just want to say, as an aside, what an interesting way to introduce yourself and to start talking to a group of non-Jewish people. It's, you know, I believe it's wrong for me to be here talking to you. It's against my law. I mean, these people are saying, who is this? Who does he think he is? Um, but then he gets into things. And eventually what he says in verse 41 is he says, um, he was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us. He's with six other people who've come and visited. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. This is a theme in the early um, sharing of the truth of the resurrection. There's a theme of saying, talk to those of us who were there, who saw him die, who saw his limp body, and who then saw him after we saw him. You can ask. The Apostle Paul is speaking before a king in chapter 26 of the same book. And he says to someone he hasn't talked to before, he says, you know about these things. It wasn't done in a corner. And he's talking about the resurrection. Another place Paul says in 1 Corinthians verse 5, chapter 15, he says that Jesus appeared in one instance to 500 people at one time after he had risen. And then he said, most of those people are still alive. In other words, you can go check it out. Are you, do you doubt that this happened? Go ask. And if you don't like how the first person describes it, you can go to the second. If the second person seems a little goofy or wacky, you can go talk to the third and, you know, the fourth and the fifth and the hundredth and the two hundredth person who saw him, and they'll all say the same thing. Um, for, in that time period, for people to have, to have made, if they were making this up, if it hadn't happened, it'd be a little bit like if I said to you right now that in, when I was eight years old, in 1985, I won the National Spelling Bee. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't. And that would, okay. I didn't, I didn't but in, in that would be, you know, someone would get that myth busted very quickly. I mean, that'd be, some of you would say, oh, that's really nice. Our pastor won the Spelling Bee. That's really cool. But in about, you know, two minutes, someone in the back would hold up their iPhone and say the name of the real person who, you know, who did. I mean, it's that recent enough, and we have records, and that's exactly the sense you get in the early Christian church. It happened. Go ask people who were there. You can check it. And two other quick quick little pieces of evidence is to say this happened. Um, we often say today, or people often say, even I've heard theologians say that, well, 
those early Christians, certainly they meant some kind of metaphorical meaning behind resurrection. And so there was a sense they loved Jesus, he made a big impact, and he changed their lives so much that after he was dead, they just kind of got a sense that, you know, the dream lives on. You know, it was, it's sort of a metaphorical resurrection. Jesus seems to be still with us. You know, it's, the dream lives on. His impact didn't end. Now, the only problem with that is that that's a very recent invention of, of how people talk because in the early stages, they didn't talk about it like that at all. There's no evidence of them talking metaphorically. They said things like, they didn't say, the dream lives on. They said, I was with him and he ate a piece of fish. I mean, that's the, that's the way they talked about it. It was very non-romantic. Okay, one last piece of evidence. In a world back then where women were considered illegitimate as witnesses of events, their testimony not accepted in courts, all the accounts of the resurrection have women being the first witnesses of what happened. Not at all how you would make up a story that you wanted to be credible. All the stories have women as the first witnesses in a culture where they weren't accepted as, as legitimate testimony. All these things, and I could list like five or six other, go in favor of it happening. And just by nature of all that evidence that you can find, you need to consider it. And consider whether it affects your life, because the implications are great. If Jesus who insinuated often and regularly that he came from God, rose from the dead, and then the implication is there will be a greater resurrection and life doesn't end with death. That's a pretty big deal to consider, especially if all the evidence lines up. So second, it fuels your openness to others. Why do you need the resurrection? Because it fuels your openness to others. That's what this whole encounter is about. We read just the little sermon of a big story that's happening about people's uh, openness to others being um, unlocked by the resurrection. So I don't know if you have anything in your worldview fixed there, something that speaks out an operating principle or something that will consistently speak out to your narrow-mindedness, the impulses you have to be exclusivist in some aspect of your life, um, the way in which you might kind of inwardly say, you know, well... Um, this person over here, I, I'm going to exclude a little bit, or that person over there doesn't deserve my time. Do you have anything in your worldview, an operating principle that says you have no right to exclude and to decide who deserves? Do you have anything like that? And you might say, well, you know, we all, come on, we all know inwardly, don't we all know that bigotry is wrong, that racism is wrong, classism is de- deplorable, sexism is, is not the way to go. Don't we all know that? Well, don't be... Ask the question, on what basis does that claim rest? And are you sure that there won't be a time in the future when the basis on which those rests will be challenged? Don't be naive enough to think of that you will never end up being the one, to your dismay, who is being narrow-minded and excluding others. The early Christians had something at the center of their worldview that pushed that out regularly. They had seen, <laughs> they had seen death reversed before their eyes. This was a movement right from the beginning where people were used to the idea that get ready for things to be reversed in my life. If death can be reversed, then maybe, in the instance of this story, maybe the hundreds of years of Jewish practice of saying, 
This is for us. People like Cornelius can look in the window at what we're doing. But this is for us. God said so. And suddenly, in one fell swoop, almost instantaneously, that is in this story, thrown and the whole new movement agrees, yes, this is expanding to all people. They're just us. You know how crazy that is, of a leap that is for the Jewish people in the first century. People just don't change that quickly. The resurrection, people who have seen someone alive after they were dead, maybe they get used to things reversing that quickly. Um, In fact, they started talking about um, early on, from the beginning, this word repent, which is just like personal reversal. Be ready. Things in your life get turned around. You, gotta, you, know, you might be the one who's being narrow-minded. Do you have, are there people in your friends group, friend group or in your, um, in your family circles, are there people that you just kind of, it's okay to write off certain people? You know, you know what I'm saying? Every group has something different. It has a different person or a group of people that it's okay when we get together to kind of, um, kind of brush stroke the people with this viewpoint away or these people from our family who are on that side of the family. You know, you've got these little, you've got these things that you've said, oh, it's okay. It's okay to write that off. Do you have anything in your worldview that's going to call you on that? It's going to say, uh, rethink that a second. The resurrection does. Christians have that. It refuels, or it not refuels, uh, it fuels your openness to others. Refuel is our leadership meeting once a month. So that's, my brain went there. Um, which is really good. This Thursday, by the way, we just had a meeting. Um, the third point is that it gives you the judge your, your heart is longing for. Now this is the one... Um, that probably puzzled you the most as I described the three reasons why you need the risen or the empty tomb or the resurrection. Um, I wonder I wonder about Cornelius and his family and friends all gathered in his house. I wonder where they stood, where Cornelius was with the idea of God's judgment. I wonder how they felt. I wonder if they had a nagging sense that Often we have that if there is, we know the Bible talks here and there about judgment and the God who judges. This passage that we read says that Jesus was appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead, almost verbatim for how we say it in, um, in the Apostles' Creed in the service. I wonder how they felt and how we feel about a judging God. Is there a feeling like, man, this, is, this must be, the picture must be of someone obsessed with finding, nitpicking through our life into our areas of personal freedom and, um, and eventually seeing enough distasteful stuff that he, he's going to write us off. And, and is there a sense of living within that fear? And so maybe pushing the whole idea of judgment away or, or this kind of God away. Um, the idea that God will write you off or in biblical language that, that, that he might curse you instead of bless you. Well, the thing about the empty tomb is that it raises an obvious question. If Jesus was powerful enough to, to beat death, to rise after being killed, why did he die in the first place? Why didn't he beat it a little earlier? Why didn't he go through the, why did he have to go through the suffering? What was that all about? And 
dying on a cross. You see what happens? If Jesus rises from the dead and has that kind of power, it immediately forces an interpretive question. This is just my last point. It forces an interpretive question where you ask, what on earth was going on with his suffering and his death? Um, and so you start thinking about that. You start wondering about that. And in verse 42 and 43, you see two things going on. In verse 42, Jesus is described as the judge of the living and the dead. In verse 43, we read that all prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Those two verses, back to back. Appointed judge and the one in whose name comes forgiveness of sins. Do you realize what just happened? Do you see why he went to the cross? Are you afraid of, a, of God in some way judging? The judge is the forgiver. The judge, his main identity, his main role of what happens and what he is now completely allowed to do through the cross is forgive sins. I don't know, I just picture there being a lot of people in this room um, today in the room that Cornelius had prepared for Peter to speak, longing for Jesus to, 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 in a way, be a safe arbiter of our souls. Do you need a safe judge? Someone you know you can trust. Someone you know is going to meet you with mercy and forgiveness. Jesus had all this power. He could beat death. That's a, that's a lot of power. But he, he went through death. Why? What did he still have left to do? He didn't have you yet. And so he took the place on the cross so that he could have you and bring you in. I think Cornelius needed to know that the judge was a forgiver, and I think we need to know that too. Let us pray. God, thank you that you blow our minds every time we think about this, that you force us to consider, is this possible, and what are the implications of a grace that is this big? And the resurrection just tells us that you have that power, that Jesus has that power, um, and that that grace now goes forth uninhibited into our lives. Would you show us that grace? Whether we've heard it a hundred times or we're very new to considering it, make it real for us because we all need the same thing. We all need your grace. We need to embrace it. We need to live more connected to it and less, less uh, focused and obsessed with saving ourselves. Take that burden off our shoulders and help us step by step to believe. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.